Once again, it's a pleasure to have everyone out. Thank you for blessing us with your presence, especially if you're a visitor. We thank you for coming out and showing your interest in spiritual things and showing your support for the work of the congregation this week. And if you're a member, so very glad to see you as well. So you can stir one another up to love and good works. It's your duty to be here, but I'm glad that you have fulfilled your duty. And so it's good to see everyone here. One of the most exciting aspects of this gospel meeting for me has been the opportunity to spend some quality time with brethren breaking bread together. I generally don't do that for my local uh, gospel meetings because I'm coming from work and got too much on my plate, but I just wanted to make a point uh, for my home congregation to have some time to sit down and have a meal with brethren. And I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Had a great time. And that was uh, continued tonight when I had an opportunity to eat with uh, Bob and Sherry. And we had a fantastic time, great food, a great conversation. And I'm just so glad that Lord has blessed me with an opportunity to sit down with each one of these families and spend some time with you. And I'm just reminded, I think I preached a sermon here uh, a little while ago, are you wearing yourself out for Christ? And one of those points was hospitality and that how much we gain from each other when we spend time together uh, in houses or restaurants and sit down and have a meal together. And I've just thought to myself, I just don't do enough of that. And I really appreciate each and every one of you that have uh, extended that hospitality to me. It's been so uh, encouraging and edifying and to my family as well. Got a statement for you. To be saved, you must be baptized. To be saved, you must be baptized. How are you feeling about that statement? Are you getting angry about it? Are you resisting the, the truth of that statement? Do, do you think that, uh, how dare, how dare that preacher get up there and say something that is so alienating, that's so polarizing, that's so divisive to suggest that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. What do you think about the truth of that statement? And how should we go about, how should you go about analyzing the truth of that statement? Should you say, well, that, that's just not what my preacher or pastor teaches they don't teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. Should you say, well, you know, I wasn't raised that way. That, I wasn't raised in a tradition that way. My mother and father didn't believe that. And my mother and father were great folks. And if they didn't believe that, then it is certainly not true. Uh, do you say to yourself, well, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, think about all the people in the world that are not baptized. Think about all the good, sincere people that haven't been baptized. And you're suggesting those people are not saved. What do you think about the statement, to be saved, you must be baptized? Well, let me suggest another way to react to that statement. Allow me to suggest another way to evaluate that statement. And it's found in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. Acts the 17th chapter in verses 10 through 11. How should we react to this statement? To be saved, you must be baptized into Christ. Acts 17, 10 through 11. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now listen to verse 11. 
these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? In that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So the brethren in Berea, these folks in Berea, are described as being more fair-minded than those who are in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether the things that Paul and Silas were preaching, the things that Paul and Silas were teaching, whether they were true or not. Now, I want you to think about what they didn't do. What they didn't do, they didn't say... You know, that doesn't make sense to me. What Paul is saying, it just doesn't make sense. I I just don't think that's right. Paul, we're going to reject what Paul and Silas are saying because it just doesn't make sense. They didn't say, you know what, I believe that because that's what my mom and dad taught me. I've always been raised to to believe that. And so it's consistent what mom and dad said. Think the world of mom and dad. And so if Paul says something that mom and dad told me, and I think the world of mom and dad, then it's okay what Paul said. They didn't say, well, let's take a vote. How many people here think that what Paul said is truth? And whatever gets the majority, majority says yes, well, then it's truth. And the majority says no, then it's not truth. They didn't say, they didn't say you know what, we can't accept what Paul said because we know some good, sincere, devout people who just don't believe what Paul and Silas said. The Bereans didn't do any of that. What did they do? They searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And I want to suggest to you that that is the response to the statement that I made at the beginning of the sermon. To be saved, you must be baptized into Christ. What we ought to do is look at the Scriptures and see what they say. We're not going to refer to tradition. We're not going to refer to just common sense. We're not going to refer to just our own experiences. We're not going to refer to what our moms and dads taught us. We're not going to refer to, well, we got some good devout people who believe this and that. No, no, no. To decide the statement, to be saved, you must be baptized into Christ. To decide whether that statement is true, we're going to be just like the Brians. And we're going to search the Scriptures. So with that, by way of introduction, let's say this. The first point, as we look at this question is Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 16. Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 16. Mark the 16th chapter, verses 14 through 16. Later he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus said, I want you, your, my apostles, to go out into all the world, and I want you to say this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not is condemned. Well, what, what does that mean? Is that a difficult statement to understand? Is that 
uh, a very esoteric, profound statement that only the most well-studied can possibly divine the truth of. No, we can take somebody off the street and just say, hey, what does Jesus say in Mark 16, 16? And you ask them this question. Based on Mark 16, 16, what must a person do to be saved? And if the person can read and the person's unbiased, what are they going to say? You got to believe and you got to be baptized. Why? Because that's what it says. That's what the Lord said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Nobody in their right mind would cut out baptism and say, he who believes will be saved. Because that's not what it says. That's not fair to the text. Anybody can see that if you're not biased and you just read what it says. And you know, it's interesting. Who said it? You know who said that? Jesus did. The Son of God. The one who died on that cross. The one whose blood makes salvation possible. So he has a lot of authority and credibility and weight in what he says. The Son of God says to us, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Why would we resist that? Why would we contest that? Who in their right mind would question the Lord and Savior? who says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you are part of a group, a religious group, that teaches anything other than that, you realize you put yourself and your group puts itself in opposition to what Jesus said. If you say anything other than you've got to believe and you've got to be baptized to be saved. That's really simple. That's really straightforward. Jesus taught that we must be baptized to be saved. Turn with me Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Jesus taught that we must be baptized to be saved. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says to his apostles, all authority has been given to me. What does that leave out? Is there some authority? When you say all authority, what does that leave out? He's got all authority. He says, on the basis of this authority, I want you to go out and make disciples of all the nations. How are we going to do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do I make disciples? I've got to baptize them. If they're not baptized, they're not going to be disciples. And if they're not disciples, they're not going to have salvation. The Lord says, on the basis of my authority, you go out there and you spread the gospel and you make disciples. And the way you make disciples is you teach them the gospel. And you know what's included in that gospel? Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is Jesus who's saying this. Jesus who's telling us, you want to be saved? Here's how it's done. You want to make disciples? Here's how it's done. And nobody, I would think no one would want to say, well, I disagree with Jesus on that. I think Jesus is wrong on that. I think Jesus missed it on that. I think everybody would say that the Lord has absolute, as he said here, authority to tell us how we are to be saved. 
And he tells us that we must be baptized to be saved. So it doesn't matter what we think about that. It doesn't matter if that makes sense to us. It doesn't matter what we've been taught by our mothers and fathers. It doesn't matter what religious tradition we've been raised in. It doesn't matter whether we know we think some good, sincere, devout people who don't believe that. The bottom line is the Lord said, whatever the Lord says, that's true. The Lord said that you must be baptized in order to be saved. But not only that, let me give you a second point. The apostles taught that you must be baptized to be saved. Second point, the apostles taught that you must be baptized to be saved. Turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 36 through 41. Acts the second chapter, verses 36 through 41. And notice as we do this, we are doing what the Bereans did, Acts 17, 10, 11. They searched the scriptures. We don't want somebody's opinion. We don't want people's traditions. We're not taking common sense divorce from the scriptures. No. What does the word of God say on the subject of to be saved, you must be baptized? Is that true or not? And we've established that Jesus taught that. Now we're establishing that his apostles taught that. Acts chapter 2 verses 36 through 41 on Pentecost, uh, Peter and the apostles got up and Peter preached and said this, therefore let all the house of Israel, verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren what shall we do? I want you to think about that for a second. Peter has preached a sermon that has condemned these very people who are listening to the message of taking with lawless hands and crucifying the very Son of God whom God had sent to save these people. That's what they had been accused of. That's what they were guilty of. And there were some in that audience that took that to heart. There were some in that audience that obviously believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that they had taken with lawless hands and they had crucified the very one God had sent to save them. And you know, they were so overcome, they said in despair, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, what do we do about this? You've convicted us that we, we killed Jesus. We killed the Son of God. We rejected him. What can we do about this? And we we just so used to reading Acts 2.38, and we just think, well, of course there's an answer to that. But but what if what if Peter had said this? There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. You, you, you killed the Messiah. You took you, how dare you? How dare you take the Son of God and crucify him? There is no salvation for you. You're gonna go to hell. And it's what you deserve. What if Peter had said that? Now, he didn't say that, but what if he had? And, and when we think about that, we understand that what Peter says now in response to that question is a lifeline, is an expression of grace, is an expression of mercy. A lot of times people think that there's a difference between baptism and, and mercy. No, no, no. This is the expression of mercy. These people are overcome with the fact we've committed this terrible sin. What can we do about it? Is there any hope for us? Is there anything we can do? And Peter says, yes, there is something you can do. Now let's read Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were what? Were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. There was something they could do. There was something they could do about this terrible predicament they found themselves in, one that they placed themselves in with their own sin, their own decision making. He says, repent and be baptized for what? For the remission of sins, to have your sins washed away. You mean even the sin of taking the Son of God with lawless hands and crucifying Him? Yes, even that sin, for the remission of sins. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. Do you see how baptism is an expression of grace and mercy? Too many people suggest that, well, baptism, well, that, that's a work, and that has nothing to do with the grace of God, and that takes away from the mercy of God and the grace of God. No, it's an expression of the grace of God. The fact that they could get their sins washed away. They could have remission of sins if they repented and they were baptized. That was a message of hope. If you don't think so, just imagine if you're in that audience, and you're one of the ones who said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And you heard that message that said, those who gladly received his word, they did what? They were baptized. Why? Because it was necessary for remission of sins. See, that's what the apostles taught. The question on the table, to be saved, one must be baptized into Christ. Is that true? Jesus taught that it was true, and his apostles taught that it was true. And you know what else? Third point. The holy inspired scriptures teach that you must be baptized to be saved. The holy inspired scriptures, the Word of God, teach that we must be baptized to be saved. Let's look at some passages along those lines. First of all, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. The apostles taught that you must be baptized to be saved. The holy inspired Word of God teaches that you must be baptized to be saved. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verses 12 to 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. The Bible says this For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now listen, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And have all been made to drink into one spirit. So we Christian people are all in one body, the body of Christ. How does the Apostle Paul by inspiration say that we got into that body of Christ? How do we make entrance into the body of Christ? What was the mechanism whereby we could become a part of the body of Christ or the church of Christ, the church belonging to Christ? He says we were baptized into that body. We were baptized into that church. Now, here's the question. If you're not baptized in that body, are you in the body? No. Because how did you get in the body? You had to be baptized. He says all of us who are in the body of Christ, how did we get there? We were baptized into that body. So if somebody's going around saying, I believe Jesus and I'm saved and I'm religious, have you been baptized in the body? No. Are they in the body? No. But they're religious. No, but they believe Jesus. No, but they go to church. No, but they're moral people. No, but they're sincere. No, but they're devout. No. Question is, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, have you, like those Christians, like the Apostle Paul, have you been baptized into that one body? If you have, then you're in the one body, the body of Christ, the church of Christ. But if you haven't been baptized in that body, you're not in it. That's not what I said. That's what the Scriptures say. Look at Galatians 3. 26 through 28. Galatians, the third chapter, 
verses 26 to 28. Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. The apostles taught that you must be baptized to be saved. And the scriptures teach that you must be baptized to be saved. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. Galatians, the th- uh, third chapter, verses 26 to 28. The Bible says this, For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Somebody may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, no, no. What I teach, what I believe, just got to have faith. I see that in Galatians 3.26, it says, for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I rest my case. All you got to have is faith. Read the next verse. I'm not denying the necessity of faith. But read the next verse because he says, for, he's connecting the two. Let me explain how you become sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How did you become a son of God through faith? You put on Christ. How did you put on Christ? You were baptized into Christ, as many of you. So here's the question. If you haven't been baptized, have you put on Christ? Well, of course not. The verse says, as many of you as have been baptized, only that group of people, the ones who've been baptized into Christ, those people have put on Christ. If you have not been baptized into Christ, guess what? You haven't put on Christ. Again, not trying to be mean. This is not church Christism. This is not Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell, Barton W. Stone. This is the Bible. These are the scriptures. The scriptures are saying the necessity of baptism for salvation. 1 Peter 3, 21. 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 21. Turn over there. Jesus taught that you must be baptized to be saved. The apostles taught that you must be baptized to be saved. And the scriptures teach that you must be baptized to be saved. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. And let's just stop there for a second. There's an antitype which now saves us. You may say, ah, I don't know what the antitype is. But, but whether you know what the antitype is or not, can we agree on this? If it says there is now an antitype which now saves us, whatever that antitype is, it does save us, right? I mean, sure, we can agree on that. Whatever it is, it saves. That's what the verse says. We can't deny that. We can't say, I don't understand it. That makes sense to me. I wasn't taught that way. Uh-uh. Whatever that antitype is, the scriptures say it now saves us. Now, let's read the rest of 1 Peter 3, 21. The Bible says, Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was that antitype? Baptism. What does the antitype do? It now saves us. So, if baptism is the antitype, and the antitype now saves us, is this true? Baptism doth now save us. Of course it's true. So, if you belong to a religious group that says baptism doesn't save you, what have the scriptures just said? Baptism doth now save us. I remember having a Bible study with a young man, and uh, we were talking about it. He, he felt 
that he was a Christian. He just felt he'd been raised as a Christian. He was just convinced and convicted that he had to be a Christian. And so we were studying this question that we're studying tonight, which is whether or not baptism is necessary for salvation. And so we talked about this verse among many, 1 Peter 3.21. And I said, look, men may say that baptism doesn't save us, but God says in 1 Peter 3.21 that it does. Now the choice is yours. You can go with men who say it doesn't, or you can go with God who says it does. And it's just that simple, folks. It's not, a, don't give me, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand that. That seems too ceremonial to me. Uh, that doesn't seem fair to me. Not everybody who's religious does that. No, 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 no. We're, we're, again, the Bereans. The only question that's relevant is, what do the Scriptures say? And we've just read in 1 Peter 3.21 that baptism saves us. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 11. Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Jesus taught that a man must be baptized to be saved. The apostles taught that a man must be baptized to be saved. The scriptures teach that a man must be baptized to be saved. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ Knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you see all the benefits that come from being baptized into Christ? You see all the wonderful things that flow from being buried with Christ in baptism. And the corollary is true. If all these blessings come from being buried with Christ in baptism, if you're not buried with Christ in baptism, then none of those blessings come to you. Is that fair? So when we go through these passages again, let's talk about it that way. Look at it that way. When he says that in verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So I want to walk in newness of life. How do I do that? I've got to be buried with Christ in baptism and then raised into that new life, right? So if I am not baptized for remission of my sins, can I be raised to walk in that newness of life? No. That's a blessing that's outside of baptism. You have to be baptized. You have to be buried with him in order to get that. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, for if we being united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So again, I want to be united with Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. How do I do that? Well, I first got to be buried with him in baptism and then raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if I'm not baptized for remission of sins, can I be raised in the likeness? 
likeness of His resurrection? No. That's a benefit again. Exclusively found in baptism. Keep reading. He says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Who doesn't want to be freed from sin? Who doesn't want to escape the captivity of the devil? Who doesn't want to have true freedom? How do we get true freedom? We've got to die with Him. Where does that happen? In baptism. So if one is not baptized for remission of sins, have you been freed from sin? But you know, I'm religious. Have you been freed from sin? But you know, I'm devout. Have you been freed from sin? But you know, I'm sincere. Have you been freed from sin? But you know, I go to church. Answer, no. You haven't been freed from sin. Why? Because you weren't buried with him in baptism to get that benefit. You see the point? It's just rich, all the wonderful things that come through baptism. It is not some empty ritual as some people want to portray it. It's not as some people say, oh, baptism, you just, you go in a dry devil, you come up a wet devil. You're still a devil. No, you're transformed. You're different. It means something. You walk, you're a new creature in Christ. We say that. That's biblical language. You're not the same person anymore. It's powerful. But all those blessings that are found in Romans 6, they don't come to the person who's not baptized for the mission of their sins. And so, yes, the scriptures teach that we must be baptized in order to be saved. But let's look at another thing. There are incidents of conversion in the Bible. Fourth point. Incidents of conversion in the Bible that themselves teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. Let's look at a few of those. One of my favorites, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. There are incidents of conversion in the Scriptures that themselves teach that a man must be baptized, that a woman must be baptized in order to be saved. Let's look at those incidents of conversion. Now, to me, this is one of the strongest uh, arguments in favor of the necessity of baptism for salvation. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So if they found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city. I want you to listen to this. And you will be told what you must do. You will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now I want to turn to Paul's recounting of his conversion in Acts chapter 22 to continue the thought. Acts chapter 22, we'll look at verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16. Acts 22, again, we're looking at the conversion of Saul, and that will teach us that baptism is necessary for salvation. Acts 22, verses 12 through 16. The Bible says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, According to the law, Ananias was in Damascus, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. This is Paul talking. So Ananias came to Paul, and he stood, at that time be Saul, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will 
and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Let's see if we get this straight. We have Saul who is going to Damascus having letters of authority to throw Christians into prison. And on the way to Damascus, he meets the Lord and has a conversation with the Lord and becomes convinced by virtue of that conversation that Jesus is the risen Savior and the very one he's been fighting against is truly the Son of God. And there's no question that after that encounter, he believes. No question about it. And after believing, he comes into Damascus. He's now blind. He's lost his sight. And for three days, he's without food, without drink. He's fasting. So we have a man who is believing and fasting. And then we have something curious happen. Ananias comes to him and says he needs to rise up and wash away his sins through what? Through baptism. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought faith alone saved. I thought as long as a person believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that's enough to save. So, Ananias, you got it wrong. Ananias, no, 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 no. Paul already believes, or Saul already believes, no question about that. And if he believes, then he's saved. And if he's saved, he doesn't have any sins to wash away. What are you talking about? Well, what we're talking about is faith only must not be true. Because here we have a man that no question about it. This man believes. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no question about that. He's had a conversation with the Lord. He's been convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. The very one he's been persecuting, this is the Son of God. This is the Savior. He believes that. But you know what? Ananias says, despite that belief, you still have sins. And you need to do something about that. And there's an urgency to it. What are you waiting for? What are you supposed to do? Get baptized. You know what that tells me? That tells me baptism is necessary for salvation. That, that Paul or Saul, he wasn't saved just based on believing. And who out here would say, well, well, I, I don't know about Saul, but me, I, I, I'm going to be saved through faith. Wait a minute. You're now saying God's a respecter of persons? That, that, that you have got a, a, a better, a quicker ticket to heaven than Saul does. Saul believed, but he wasn't saved. He had to be baptized. But you, on the other hand... You've got a different way to go to heaven. You believe and you got saved. And if you want to get baptized, that's a nice thing to do as an outward sign of an inward faith. That's a nice thing to do to everybody you're a member of this local congregation. No, 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 wait a minute. There's one plan of salvation. And God is no respecter of persons. We're going to talk about more about that in a minute. Look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Remember we were talking on Sunday how there was a raging controversy in early Christianity about what to do about these pesky Gentiles. Can, can they just obey the gospel and be fine or do they need to do something under the old law? They need to start being like us, be circumcised first, the gospel plus. So this debate is still raging in Acts chapter 15 and the apostles and the elders came together in Jerusalem to consider this very question, is it necessary to circumcise uh, the Gentiles who want to be saved? Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, I want you to listen to verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And so again, what was the question on the table? The question is, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? The Gentiles need to keep the old law. Do the Gentiles need to have the gospel plus? So uh, the way they were teaching it, there were really two gospels. There's a gospel for the Jews, and then there's a little different gospel for the Gentiles. And Peter, time and time again, says, look, God didn't make any distinction. You know, I was in the household of Cornelius. I saw the Holy Spirit come down on those folks, Gentiles. And you know what? It reminded me of what happened on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the same way the Holy Spirit came upon us. God didn't make any distinction there. And then he says, you know, we believe that we will be saved. We, the Jews, will be saved in the what? The same manner as they. Who's the they? The Gentiles. Well, how broad is that? You got Jews, and you got everybody else who's Gentiles. And Peter says, we're all saved in the same manner. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that uh, Peter wasn't thinking back then. Now, thousands of years in the future, you're going to have some people come around preaching faith only. But he makes a statement that is true that has implications on this question we're studying tonight. He says that we're all saved in the same manner. Now, if one of us, like Saul, can believe but also has to be baptized to be saved, but then another one of us can simply believe and we don't have to be baptized. Now, friends, I'm not an English grammarian nor an English college professor, but I know one thing, that ain't, bad English, the same manner as they. That's a different manner. To be saved by faith versus being saved by having to believe and be baptized, that's not the same manner. So what does that tell me? There's only one plan of salvation. And the same thing that Saul had to do, the same thing that the Ethiopian eunuch had to do, the same thing those 3,000 men on Pentecost had to do in Acts chapter 2, the same thing that the Philippian jailer had to do, the same thing that everybody in the New Testament had to do to obey the gospel is the same manner, the same gospel that people today have to obey in order to be saved. And part of that gospel was the necessity of baptism. How, How do you get around that? What do you do with the conversion to Saul? Let's look at another conversion experience. Turn over to Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 6. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Acts the 10th chapter. Jesus taught that a man must be baptized to be saved. The apostles taught that a man must be baptized to be saved. The scriptures teach that a man must be baptized to be saved. And the conversion experiences in the Bible teach that a man must be baptized to be saved. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now listen to verse 6 and just tell me if it seems to remind you of what the Lord told Saul. 
He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And we're going to fast forward a little bit. Acts 11, after the conversion of Cornelius, after he's obeyed the gospel, after he's been baptized into Christ, uh, Peter gets back to Jerusalem, and it gets out that, that Peter had the audacity as a Jew to be associated with Gentiles, to go in to their homes, to eat with them. And so some of his fellow Jews got after him for that. And Peter says, hold on, guys, before you start getting on to me, I, I want to tell you something. What I did was approved by God. And he says, he kind of recounts the uh, conversion or the process that got started that led to the conversion of Cornelius. Look at Acts 11, verses 11, 12, and 13. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Now he's talking about Cornelius. And he, this is Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Listen to verse 14. Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So this is Peter recounting what happened in this conversation between the angel and Cornelius. Remember we read Acts 10, 6, that the angel told him what he must do. Simon, Peter was going to give him that information, what he must do. Now, what's interesting about that is, what kind of man was this that was going to have to be told what he must do? A devout man, a man who believed God, a man who gave alms to the poor, a man who even led his household in believing God. I mean, look at this description again. We're going to read again for emphasis. A devout man, verse 2, one who feared God with his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And, and think about that. Who said that? Whose assessment of Cornelius is that? You say, well, it's in the book of Acts, and Luke the physician wrote it. Well, that's right. But did Luke just come out and home and say, you know, Cornelius, he's a good fellow. I really like that guy. No, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write those things. So what does that mean? God, that's God's assessment of that man. He's devout, fears God with all his household, gives alms generously to the people. And yet the angel told him that he would hear words by which he and his household will be saved. No, 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 angel, you got it wrong. He's a good man. He's a religious man. He's a sincere man. He's a devout man. By any definition, he's saved. Words by which you and your household will be saved. What is that? That's future tense. So in all that devoutness and all that giving of alms and all that believing of God and leading his household in believing of God, what was his spiritual state at that time when the angel gave those instructions? He was lost. He was lost. You mean there would be good people that are lost? You mean there are devout people who can be lost? You mean there are religious people who can be lost? You mean people who give alms to people generously who can be lost? That's exactly what happened to Cornelius. Now you tell me, who do you know that's better than Cornelius? Do you, do you have a neighbor? Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a friend? Do you have a co-worker? And the Holy Spirit said to them that that person is devout, believed God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people. I don't think there's too many people that can get a better commendation than Cornelius, but he was lost unless he was going to do what Peter was going to tell him. Because the angel said those words that Peter was going to give, those words would save him and his household. 
So let's see what those words were. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. What are those words by which Cornelius and his household will be saved? Acts 10, 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, he's in the house of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. This was the reference in Acts 15 when he said, hey, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it fell upon us. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That's a reference to how it happened in the Pentecost. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had rained down on the apostles. Here it is again. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, listen to this. Remember, words by which you and your household will be saved. Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he what commanded them to be what? To be baptized in what? In the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. The angel said to Cornelius, you go to Peter. Peter is going to give you words by which you and your household will be saved. What words did Peter give them? Get baptized. He commanded them to be baptized. That was what the angel said you have to do. That was part of what you had to do to be saved. Baptism was a part of obeying the gospel. And it was absolutely necessary to take this good, devout, religious, almsgiving man, take him out of a state of being spiritually dead, lost in his sins, and putting him in a condition of being saved, safe in the arms of Jesus. And baptism was a part of that transition, a necessary part. Is it necessary for a man to be baptized to be saved? Well, the conversion experience of Cornelius says yes, just as that of Saul. Give you a couple of thoughts. Why is it that people object so much about baptism? Why is it that people push back? Somebody will say, well, you know, I, I want to be saved like the, like the thief on the cross. You know, Luke 23, 39 through 43. And, you know, one of the thieves uh, turned uh, to, to, to Jesus and said, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He said, today, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to be like that thief. Well, let's think about that. I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, in order for that to, to happen, first of all, you have to go back in time, right? You have to be hanging on a cross, right? You have to be right there where Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying. And that's the way you want to be saved. You sure about that? And remember this, that when did that take place? That's before the New Testament. And that's important. It's before the New Testament is ushered in. We understand this concept. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17 says a little bit about this. Let's look over there. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17. The thief on the cross died before the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament, this is a very important point, verse 17. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. We understand that concept, right? You have a will. Let's say I have a will. And in my will, I can say, how my possessions are going to be distributed. And, and I, maybe I say in my will that, that Jacqueline's going to get a portion of those possessions. 
And I have three children. And I say, Jasmine will get a portion of those possessions. And, and Brooke will get a portion of those possessions. And, and Blake will get a portion of those possessions. But uh, let's say that uh, one Thursday night, Blake's playing flag football. And every time the quarterback throws a pass, he drops the ball. Every single time. Time I drop the ball, drop the ball, drop. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm mad. I say, you know what? I'm going to write Blake out of the wheel. No possessions for him because he keeps on dropping the football. So I do that. I change it. But fast forward a few weeks. He practices, gets better. Has another game on Thursday night. He starts catching the football. And so I, I go back and say, you know what? I'm going to write him back in. And so I put him back in that way. You know, I can keep changing that wheel as much as I want to until one day. <laughs> what day is that? The day I die. I can't change that will anymore, can I? And whatever that will says before I die, that's it. That's the fun. So while I'm alive, that's what Hebrews says, while I'm alive, you, it has no power because I can change it all the time. It doesn't mean anything. But after a person is dead, now that will means something. Now what's the point? When did the thief on the cross hear Jesus say, today you'll be with me in paradise? It was before the New Testament. It was before the death of Jesus. And so that is different than us who are on the other side of that who fall within Acts 15, 11 when Peter says, and we're all saved in the same manner. You cannot be saved like the thief on the cross anymore. That's not available. It was available before the New Testament was ushered in. It's not available now. And so just accept what the Lord says. Somebody says, no, no, no. I, I don't believe the baptism is necessary for salvation because that's a work. And you can't do any kind of work that will lead to your salvation. It's all a matter of grace, no work whatsoever. But the people who say that, they're also the first people who say, you can believe and be saved. In fact, that's all you got to do is believe and be saved. So let's see if we can reconcile those two. On the one hand, you say, no works that have anything to do with your salvation. But you, do, you, you have to believe. Let's look at John 6, 28-29. John 6, 28-29. The Bible teaches by conversion experiences that we must be baptized to be saved. John 6, 28 to 29. Now listen to this. Then they said to him, that's Jesus. Now listen to this question very carefully. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Let's go back to the, the criticism. The criticism is baptism can't save you because it's a work. And you can't do any works that have anything to do with your salvation. Yet it's okay to believe. Just don't do any works. But what did, what did Jesus just say about belief? Jesus said belief is a work. <laughs> but you just told me no works can have anything to do with salvation. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, no. That, that's not a credible uh, defense of faith only. Think about it. It takes more of an active effort to believe than it does to be baptized. Oh yes, you allow yourself to be baptized, but you've seen baptisms here. It's really a passive process. We allow someone to submerge us under that water. And you want to tell me that you can't do anything that's a work that could be misconstrued as earning our salvation? Is there anybody in their right mind that after they're baptized comes up out of that water grave of baptism and says, now look what I did to rid myself of all my sins. Boy, I'm, I'm a great guy. Look at that. Look what I did. Look what I achieved. 
you didn't achieve anything. What you did is you satisfied God's conditions of salvation, which includes belief and repentance and confession and, yes, baptism. And when that happens, does that take away from the glory of God? I've heard that. Bapt- saying that a person is saved by baptism, that takes away the glory of God. It takes away from the glory of God. Let me see if I can get this straight. So when we do what Jesus taught us to do, when we do what the apostles taught us to do, when we do what the God-inspired scriptures taught us to do, somehow we take away from the glory of God. Does that make sense to you? Or is it the fact that when we do what Jesus taught us to do, when we do what the apostles taught us to do, when we do what the scriptures teach us to do, all praise and honor and glory be to God. That's the truth of the matter. No one comes out of that watery grave of baptism proud of themselves. If they do, they don't understand what happened. It doesn't happen without the sacrifice on the cross. It doesn't happen without Jesus dying on the cross. It doesn't happen without the resurrection. Who did all the heavy lifting in that? That's God. That's Jesus. Not us. All we did is satisfy the conditions of salvation. We've got to get away from this notion that if we do anything that impacts our salvation, somehow we are taking away from the glory of God. To the contrary, try to find me in the Scriptures where God saved anyone, Old Testament or New, saved in battles, saved from hunger, saved from thirst, where God saved anyone, and God did everything, and nobody lifted a finger. David didn't have to do anything to kill Goliath, right? Children of Israel didn't have to do anything to go into Jericho, right? Children of Israel didn't have to do anything to cross the Red Sea, right? There are always conditions to God's salvation. And baptism is no different. Must a man be baptized to be saved? The answer is a resounding yes. And we want people to understand that. Quit People overthink things. I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. Just understand what the Lord says and do it. God didn't ask for your understanding of everything. He asked you to understand what He told you to do and do it. Sometimes people think they're just going to know the mind of God. Again, we talked about Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that reveal belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. God's revealed enough for us to have a lifetime of work on And that's what we can understand. That's what we can do. That's what we can obey. And if you have a problem, I just don't understand that, then quit trying to figure that out. The Lord told us what we must do. We must be baptized to be saved. I really, you know, Peter said that Paul wrote some things that were hard to understand. Might I suggest that Galatians 3, 26 through 28 wasn't one of them. Romans 6, 1 through 11 wasn't one of them. The necessity of baptism to be saved was not one of them. It's one of the easiest things to understand in Scripture. But when you come to it with preconceived ideas, when you come to it with bias, when you come to it with tradition, when you come to it with your own thoughts, that's how you miss it. Otherwise, it's just as plain. I've told people I could take an atheist and I can have him read the passages that we read tonight. And he's going to say, first of all, I don't believe anything you believe about God. I don't believe that's the inspired Word of God. But you know what he can tell me and what he will tell me? He'll tell me that teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. An atheist could read that and understand that. So what's the problem? Let God be true and every man a liar. If anybody's here not a Christian, we encourage you to become one. We encourage you to do that tonight. Don't don't say, well, I'll do it tomorrow night. I'll do it Sunday. I'll put it off a week from now. Why? Because there's an urgency to it. 
When the Ethiopian eunuch is on this long journey and he understands the truth after Philip is preaching to him, he didn't say, well, I'll wait till I get home to Ethiopia and I'll get some. No, he said, stop. See, here is water. What does hinder me from being baptized? There was an urgency to that. The Philippian jailer, he didn't say, let's get a good night's sleep. We'll sleep on it and we'll be baptized. No, that very hour he was baptized. Why the urgency? Because it makes the difference between being lost and being saved. And that's not something you put off. When people say, I'm going to put it off and I'll do it later, that tells me one thing, you don't understand baptism. You don't put off baptism. Because if you do, you're gambling with your soul. Because if the Lord comes back or you die before you've been baptized, you are lost for all eternity. And no rational person would make that decision. So you don't understand baptism. When you understand baptism, let's do it now. Let's do it right now before it's everlasting too late. So if anybody's in this audience who has not heard the gospel and believed the gospel message, on the basis of that belief, repented of your former way of life. On the basis of that belief, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And on the basis of that belief, been baptized into Christ. I urge you, I implore you, I exhort you, please make your soul right tonight. Obey the gospel. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and you'll have the peace that passes all understanding. It's the best life you can have. All of the things you've done that you feel guilty about, all the sins you've committed, the Lord says, you know what, here's a remarkable thing. I remember them no more. They're gone. You got a clean slate. And then you can start to use all your faculties, all of your experience, all of your talents in the service of God, doing what He has authorized you to do, Luke 19, 10, to seek and to save that which is lost. We're in the soul winning business, folks. That's what we do. It's the highest goal. We want as many souls to go to heaven as possible. And in the process, let's make sure that we take heed into our own soul. First Timothy 4, 16, Paul told Timothy, take heed into yourself and to the doctrine for doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Two components. Take care of self. Keep self in the right relationship with God and teach the right doctrine. You'll save other people. If anyone's subject to that imitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand, as we sing.